All right, so I'm going to say just two things and then jump right into this. First, this is, this is a sermon, this is a message that I've been working on for a few months now. I put a lot of study, a lot of prayer into it. And second, I've trimmed and trimmed and trimmed. Um, but this is going to be one of the longer sermons that I've ever preached here. Now, seeing the time, you're still going to get out of here on time. Um, but it's going to be one of the longer sermons I've ever preached. And I, I'm not going to apologize for that, but I am just going to ask that, that you pray that the, the message is clear. So let's begin by reading John 3, 1 through 3. Larry, I forgot to bring my Bible up here. Could I borrow yours? Thank you. Yes, I think I can find it. Hopefully I can. Oh, the page numbers are different in here. I don't know. John chapter 3. We're going to look at just the first three verses to start off. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. So let's pause right there. Being born again. This is a phrase that y'all have heard before, right? Right? Some, yes, yes. We've heard this phrase before, and it's a, it's a biblical term, as, we, as we've just seen. Yet over the last 50 years or so, it's had a specific meaning within the, the greater American culture. So I did some research online, and I read a bunch of news and entertainment articles, stories that mentioned this concept of being born again, or born again Christian. And what I found over and over and over is that generally there were two types of stories concerning this terminology. First, there were stories about people who had lived the uh, sex, drugs, rock and roll lifestyle, as it is. And they were often some well-known musician or artist, uh, but then their life crashed down for whatever reason, and, and they, they got religion. They got Jesus in some form, which usually involves some sort of radical or emotional conversion experience. And now they're still prominent, but they're just crazy for Jesus. And now the rest of society just sort of looks at them as if they're, they're strange or they're weird. And then the other type of story is that they became a Christian and then became super vocal about local, statewide, or even national politics. So it, it, it seems to be, once again, we're talking about the mindset of, of the American culture when it comes to this idea of being born again. It, it seems that it's, it's, you're either this emotionally broken person who needs a crutch and you got religion, 
And so you adopted this narrow, traditional, moral, black and white framework for your life, or you have a similar experience, but then you, um, you just become very vocal in the political scene. And that's how many in our culture today perceive this term born again. But here's what's interesting about this is where does this usage of this terminology first happen? Who is the first one to coin this phrase? We, we just saw it. It's Jesus, right? It's, it's Jesus. We read it. Jesus coined the phrase, born again. Man must be born again. And so here's what I want to draw attention to. Who is Jesus speaking to here? Who is Jesus speaking to when he says you need to be born again? Our culture has this stereotype that it's somebody who needs an emotional crutch. Now they've got religion. It's somebody who has maybe adopted a very narrow, uh, traditional moral religious framework or something like that. And yet the, the very first person in history that this phrase is used with, said to, he breaks all of those stereotypes. We must remember that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. You saw that in the text. Before we even got his name, we were told that he was a Pharisee. And so to say the least, he was a very religious man, a very religious man. In terms of devout religious practice, He's got all of us beat already. Like, I mean, there's, there's no, no question there. With his devotion to the scriptures and his daily prayer at set times going on for decades and decades and decades, we know that he's, he's older. We know that he's a member of the religious elite because he's a member of the, the Jewish ruling council. He has privileged status in his culture because he's a, a Bible scholar. He's well-respected, he's looked up to. He's also wealthy. We learn about that later in John's gospel that, that he, he funded the herbs that were used to embalm Jesus's body. So he's wealthy, learned, elderly, religious studies professor, and he's a man of status in his community. Yet this is the first person in history who Jesus calls to be born again. So whatever it means to be born again, apparently it's not a call to adopt a kind of narrow, moralistic, religious framework for your life because we couldn't invent a person who's more traditional and more on religious than Nicodemus. So, so whatever the phrase born again means, it does not mean what the mainstream American culture has made it out to mean. So we need to go back to the source. We need to go back to the Bible. John felt that it was an important detail to include when this meeting took place. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. The sun is down. It's harder to see. Many people are at home. And this happens one other time in John's gospel. And we're told that the people who do this, who come to Jesus at night, they do so because they're afraid to be seen with him publicly. 
they're embarrassed. Uh, maybe they're afraid for their lives. Maybe they're afraid for their reputation. And so Nicodemus, he comes to Jesus at night. And if we're willing to read between the lines, it's pretty obvious that Nicodemus is doing some sort of uh, backroom political stunt here based on what Jesus just did in chapter two, the stunt he pulled. Remember the whole uh, flipping tables in the temple? That's what just happened in the, in the chapter prior. So essentially, Jesus has publicly offended the religious elite. And so Nicodemus is coming to him to, I don't know, maybe try to smooth things over a little bit. We know that you've been sent by God, yet Jesus, he doesn't accept the compliment. So dear friends, what does it mean to be born again? If it isn't a call to religion and to morality, since Nicodemus is already very religious and very moral, then what does it mean? And this is where the Koine Greek can help us out. And some of you might even have a a footnote in your Bible by that term, born again. It'll say, or from above. And some of you may even have some notes that talk about the nuance behind this word. It's the Greek word anathen. So the most basic meaning of this word is from above. But look down in in your Bibles to verse 31, John chapter three, verse 31, where John the Baptist says, he who comes, anathen, is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. And so he's, he's using this kind of spatial language from above and from below to talk about God's presence. Jesus claims that he comes directly from God's presence. Again, the literal meaning of the word anathen is from above. However, this word also has a nuance, kind of a a figure of speech, which is again. Now, this shouldn't seem too strange to us because we have all kinds of words in English that have double meanings, right? There are all kinds of words out there. And I think that there's there's a, a perfect example of this one floating around right now. And it's it's the phrase killed it, killed it. What does this mean? You know, you could say, oh, look, he's, he got bug spray and he sprayed the spider and he killed it. That's the, the literal meaning of that phrase. Um, but what about if it was changed a little bit? And this phrase has been changed because it's come to mean something that is completely contrary to the literal meaning, right? You, you could say, well, she practiced really hard, but was still very nervous to get up front and sing. But then she got up there and she killed it. She knocked it out of the park. She did a fantastic job. That's the phrase, killed it. That's how language works. There's nuance. So I believe that Jesus is doing a bit of wordplay here. And he intends the nuance of both both of these meanings of the word, as we'll see. Jesus, he wants to address that 
Nicodemus needs to learn something fundamental about his life. First of all, that he needs a restart. He needs a new beginning. But he also needs to recognize that whatever the form his new life is going to take, should he choose to accept it, that it's not going to come from him, that it's going to be a gift that is coming from an all-new source. What does it mean to be born again? Now look at Nicodemus's response there in the text. Which usage of the word anathen does he take Jesus to mean? From above or again? Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? <laughs> I'll admit it. I've often thought that maybe, maybe Nicodemus is this like feeble old man who's not very sharp-minded anymore. Um, and I wonder if we get suckered into believing that about him, that, that he was maybe stupid or just blatantly ignorant. But no, this guy has a sharper mind than any of us. He has the whole Old Testament memorized and all of the customs and traditions that are connected with it. His mind is sharp as a tack. He's a member of the ruling Jewish council. He's a religious studies professor, etc., etc. No, I, I think that Nicodemus here is being a little sarcastic. Jesus, young man, what you're saying here is nonsense. That's what he's saying. What is this nonsense you're talking about being born again, being born onathan? You need a new beginning, Nicodemus. Nicodemus, everything you thought you knew about God in the scriptures, it was actually a false start. You need to start over again. But what is also interesting here is that this connects with something else that Jesus said at another time to a group of Pharisees. Matthew 21, 31. Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Surely he doesn't mean that they're more moral and religious than the Pharisees. But when you have someone who's hit rock bottom or they're emotionally broken or they're in some other life crisis, financial crisis, or maybe they're on their deathbed. Somebody who lives in poverty or is socially marginalized. People with those types of life circumstances tend to be quicker to accept the fact that they need a savior, that they need to be saved. They need someone to come and rescue them. They tend to be quicker at it than someone who is living a socially, monetarily, mentally comfortable life. And Nicodemus, he's living a comfortable life. I mean, he's got really all that he can ask for at this point. He's doing just fine. And so it's going to be a lot harder for someone like Nicodemus to understand the fact that 
He needs to start his life over again, which is exactly the message that Jesus is trying to get across here. So the first thing Jesus develops about being born again is that it's about me owning up to my life and how I think about things and how I value things and who I think I am and who I think God is and that it's not okay. I'm not okay. That's that's Jesus' first goal here. And the moment I begin to think I am okay is the moment that in Jesus' mind that I have just lost touch with reality. To be born again. To be born on a thing. So that's the first thing. But Jesus goes on in verse five. Jesus answered, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus here, I believe, is is playing to Nicodemus as the Old Testament scholar that he is. He's touching on things that Nicodemus ought to know because Jesus here, he's alluding to a few passages from the prophets in the Old Testament that talk about a future day when God is going to come personally and restore justice. These passages talk about the spirit with metaphors of water, like Isaiah 44, three. For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. He's talking about the faithful remnant people of God who are are going to turn from their sins and come to accept salvation that comes from God alone. And when God pours out his life-giving presence like water, it's gonna bring new life, new life. Isaiah, he uses this rich metaphor that humanity and Israel, God's people are just dry, parched, and cracked ground. And when God gives the gift of his spirit, it's going to be like water that brings new life out of a dead thing. Then a couple hundred years or so after Isaiah, we find Ezekiel using the same imagery. Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is what the experience of God's children, God's people is to be. It's like you're married to Jesus and he takes up personal residence in your life in such a way that he begins to influence your very volition, your choices, and how you think about things, how you do things. And then all of a sudden, you go and and you do some sinful thing and then you're miserable. Those sins oppress you, at least right after you do it, hopefully, if you're following after Christ. And you're just like, Wow, sinning isn't even fun anymore. Something fundamental has changed in my life. 
That's what this is getting at. Water and spirit. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. Nicodemus, if you don't understand your life has been a false start up to this point and everything you know about morality, religion, who God is, and so on is wrong, you don't know anything about biblical faith. Your life just, it, it doesn't just need a tune-up or some additives. Nicodemus, he comes as an educated moral teacher. And notice that Jesus didn't say, oh, thank you, Nicodemus, for the compliment. And you know, I'm looking at your life and it's so devout and you've just got things together and I, I really only noticed one little thing that maybe you could tweak and it would all just be perfect. He doesn't say that. Instead, Jesus, he goes right for the jugular. You need a new life. And actually, you need to be animated and driven by a whole new source. You need a new life source, Nicodemus. Then look at what he goes on to say. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. Verse six and seven. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. You know, humans are absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. But because of sin, we are flawed. We are amazing, but we are flawed. We're compromised, and there's something fundamentally wrong with us. And I hope I, I, hope I don't have to convince you of that. There's something fundamentally wrong with us. And even if you are uncomfortable saying something like, there is something wrong with me, then hopefully we can at least um, agree that we are flawed as us, as the human race. And we've been here for thousands and thousands of years. And we can throw all kinds of technology and, and money and education at perennial human problems. But how's that working out for us? How's that working out for us in 2022? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's okay. And, and we can do some stuff and we can solve some issues. But it's just like we're just spinning our tires in the mud. And Jesus says, Listen, mortal human lives compromised by sin gives life to more mortal human lives compromised by sin. You can't expect something new from the same exact source. If you want a new life, you need a new source, Nicodemus. So let's say that you have a, a peach tree in your front yard and you've had that peach tree for years and you say, you know what? I've been eating these peaches for so long and I'm kind of sick of peaches. I want apples. And so, you know, I haven't really been faithful about watering my peach tree. So I'm gonna do better about watering it this next year. And I've never really pruned my peach tree. So in the wintertime, I'm going to prune it. Next year, what are you going to get if you water and prune your peach tree? Right, you're, you're not going to get apples. You're not going to get apples, and you still get peaches. And I know that this is kind of a, a silly illustration, but it makes the point that Jesus is trying to make. 
If you want apples, you don't work harder at your peach tree. That's not how it works. That's merely trying to reform or change the peach tree. When what you really need is a new root, a new source. You need to be born on a thing. And don't, Nicodemus, expect that you're going to understand who I am if you're trying to fit me into your religious, political framework and agenda. And Jesus continues in verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. The Greek word pneuma is the word for spirit here, but it also means wind or breath. And I can sit here and preach and and try to be as compelling as I can in explaining this. But the fact is this, for the fundamental transformation of the human heart, I cannot predict or engineer that change in anybody. I can't do it. And you, dear friends, you have people in your lives that you love, but they don't want to hear about Jesus. And you can't engineer that change in their life either. They don't care about it. They don't care about the Bible. They don't care about Christianity. And you'll never be able to engineer that change inside of them. Only the Spirit can do that. We can't even engineer that change in our own lives, let alone engineer it in someone else's life. And so Jesus is explaining that it's this organic kind of mystery, this existential reality that when a person comes to see that their whole life up to that point has been nothing but a false start, that they need something completely different, not just taking Jesus and adding him to what is already there. No, we've got to scrap our whole way of thinking and living and somehow make Jesus the foundation of it all. That's what's needed. But what would even bring someone to the place where they are willing and ready to embrace that sort of fundamental change. I believe that's where Jesus is about to go next. But look at Nicodemus's response there. He says, uh, how can this be? How can this be? And, and Jesus, it seems as if Jesus is sort of uh, getting a little bit fed up with Nicodemus playing dumb here. Um, and he, he pushes back. Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man, who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then what follows? John 3, 16. The most famous, most well-known verse in all the Bible. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so essentially, Jesus says, so Nicodemus, you need to first come to recognize that your life, it's been a false start. And whatever your future is going to look like, it's going to come from outside of yourself. It's going to be a gift of the Spirit, a new source of renewing life-breathing energy. And Jesus, he pulls out this line, you know, Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher, aren't you? Essentially, he's challenging Nicodemus because Nicodemus does not at this point believe that Jesus is who Jesus says that he is. If you don't believe who I am, Nicodemus, then you're ultimately not going to understand yourself. I'm just being honest with you, Nicodemus. I'm not just here to simply teach you, Nicodemus. I'm not here to merely add some examples or inspiration to your life, which is already going well, and it doesn't just need a little bit of a tune-up to get to the next step. You need something else entirely new. This right here is a profound moment that something else entirely, that, that thing that Jesus mentions is what he alludes to when he talks about snakes in the desert, snakes in the wilderness. Did you catch that in verse 14? He alludes to the story of Moses lifting up the snake in the wilderness. And it's, it's one of the most bizarre stories in all of scripture. The people of Israel, they're in the wilderness, they rebel against God, and then these, these venomous snakes show up in the camp and they start biting people. The people are suffering and dying. So God tells Moses to gather a bunch of bronze, melt it down, and form it into the image of the snakes that are causing all the havoc. Moses is then to take the bronze snake, to put it on a pole, and to lift it high enough in the air that everybody in the camp can see it. And whoever looks at the image of the snake will be miraculously healed. What a bizarre and strange story. But as bizarre as it is, this is the story. This is the story. And it's about people that are infected with sickness, and they're dying. And it's connected to their own sin, their own selfishness, and their own rebellion. But the very thing that is killing them, the snake, is strangely transformed into the very thing that becomes a source of life if they will simply look at it in trust and hope. And that's surely why Jesus is drawing on this particular story. Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man, who is Jesus, be lifted up. 
Can you think of a moment when Jesus was literally lifted up? You, you see a symbol of it right there, right behind me. It's a reference to the cross. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus' exaltation is precisely at the moment when he's lifted up onto that Roman execution rack. And it culminates the whole story. According to his claim, he is the Son of God. John 3.16, sent into the world to actually absorb into himself the collective effects and consequences of our stupidity and selfishness and sin and evil. And he takes it all on, all the way to the bitter end, all the way to death. But because of the commitment of our creator God and because his love is so deep, and so permanent in his commitment to our world that even our sin and our death are not allowed to be the end of the story. And so in Jesus' resurrection from the dead, we have God's fundamental statement to our world, to a sinful, rebellious people who are just spinning their tires in the mud. I love you. And I'm here to save you. It looks like what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, as long as you simply look at me as merely your teacher, what you're really telling me is that you're looking for some sort of inspiration. You're looking for a better example, some additive to your life to help you get along to the next step. But the whole point is you're still the driver. Nicodemus, you're still the source of your whole journey and your accomplishments and so on. And so what, what Jesus is trying, he's trying so hard to get Nicodemus to see here is, Nicodemus, you're sick. Nicodemus, you're infected with your own selfishness, with your own status, with your own sense of accomplishment, with your own desire for approval or whatever it is, you're sick, man. You're dying and you need a new life. And you need a life that's not going to come from watering and pruning your peach tree. You need a new root. And it's been given to you as a gift. You need a savior, Nicodemus. You don't just need another teacher. And this is all connected to the work of the Spirit. And as long as we don't understand these things, we're in a losing battle, just spinning our tires in the mud or watering our peach tree, hoping for apples. And it's not that Jesus isn't a teacher, because he is, but he's more than that. He'll only truly become our teacher when he has first become our savior. I don't know if you've ever had that feeling of being a horrible Christian. Just looking at your life and saying, I'm not very good at this. I am not very good at this. Go and read the, the classic teachings of Jesus. Go to Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Read that through. And after you've read all of his teachings and you finish, 
and you just say, oh, no problem, I've got this, no problem. Good luck with that. (laughs) Good luck with that. Come see me again in five years after you've been trying and trying and trying in your own power. Likely, you will be able to do some. Maybe even be able to do all of what Jesus asks some of the time, but what it'll do is it'll crush you. It'll crush you. Because it's meant to reveal the goodness, the generosity, and the justice of Jesus' character. But it's also meant to show us something about ourselves. That there's something more fundamentally wrong with us than just an inability to keep the rules or to be good or moral or to get religion. As Ezekiel said, we need a new spirit. We need the gift of God's spirit. And I assure you, I'm beginning to land this plane. But I've gotta be honest with y'all. In my own life, over the past year or so, the ways that I've become most aware of my needs to start over, to be re-energized and animated by the Spirit is in the area of truth-telling, saying what needs to be said. And I bet some of you can resonate with me when I say that I'm a conflict avoider. I'm a conflict avoider. And so often I, I run from difficult, tense moments conversations. And what I'll do is that when like an awkward or or, or hard subject comes up, when, when this email comes in or this letter arrives, sometimes I'll just like, I'll ignore it and I'll just sidestep it and just hope that, well, maybe if I ignore it, it'll just fix itself. It'll just magically go away. (laughs) And I'm sure none of y'all have ever done this, right? And what's going on here is that if Jesus is just my teacher, and I can go to the Bible, and I can go to his teachings, and I can see let your yes be yes and your no be no, and um, then I look and I go, oh no, here I am again. I've screwed up again. And I, I also have the tendency to be a people pleaser. I don't want to let anyone down. I want everyone to like me. So what that translates into is that it's always been difficult for me to say no, to know my own limits. And it wouldn't matter how busy or overwhelmed or burned out I was feeling, I'd always say yes, even though I knew it might not have been good for me. And I'll confess to God and I'll ask friends to pray for me and I'll just, I'll I'll keep trying real hard, try a little bit harder next time. And that goes on for a while, but at the end of the day, nothing actually changes. Nothing actually changes. And when we have these experiences, we might get angry with Jesus. Or maybe you're prone to self-loathing and you beat yourself up and, and you wonder, how could Jesus ever even love me? Or maybe you're prone to justifying your behavior. And you, you find yourself saying, well, you know, why does Jesus really make such a big deal about lying, cheating, and stealing? And we just get stuck 
spinning our wheels in the mud. But we aren't getting to the root of the issue. If Jesus is just my teacher, then I look at his teachings and I just try harder. I water and prune the, pre, the, the peach tree, whatever. But Jesus is saying, dude, Nicodemus, you're Israel's teacher and you don't even understand that you need a savior. You don't understand that your heart is in a state that you can't fix. It needs to be given to you as a gift. And I look at the world and I realize that a large part of why it's in the state that it's in is because none of us will be honest with each other. We don't tell the truth, we hold grudges and say rude things and we judge people and their intentions and covet and lie and do all these underhanded things to each other. And is it a wonder that the world is in a state that it's currently in? But Jesus comes as Savior, representing the love of God to absorb all those effects and consequences into himself on the cross. And I am not just called to look more and more at my own behavior. I'm called, like the snake on the pole, to look at Jesus, to stop and look at Jesus. And all of a sudden, I see that even in my heart's given state, he still loves me. And he did that for me. He loves me. And that changes the game. It changes everything. Because all of a sudden, I view my misbehavior in a completely different way. Because it's not just about my inability to keep the rules, is it? It's actually because my heart and my allegiance And what I look to for value and meaning, what I look to as my God is you all and your approval of me. And the fact that I'm a good pastor and I can remember people's names and prayer requests and answer tough Bible questions and that I'm a responsible person and can share board meetings and I want people to approve of me because apparently that's what makes me acceptable. That justifies my existence in the universe. (laughs) Some people think I'm a good guy or a great pastor or whatever. But what actually am I looking to to make me acceptable to God? Not what Jesus did for me, but it's what I'm trying to do for myself through all of you. What a screwed up person I am. And we're all doing this to each other all the time. All the time. What a hopeless love. But that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point. Because once we can realize that our life was a false start and that we need something from outside of ourselves to animate us, then we can learn to confess the sin beneath the sin not just our inability to keep the rules, but that we're worshiping a false God. 
and looking to ground our values and acceptability in something other than what Jesus has done for us. So how do you get born again? That's about as silly of a question to ask as, how did you get born? (laughs) The metaphor is significant. You didn't get born. You just were born. None of us chose to be born. So what I do is I simply recognize that someone has labored and gone through pain in order to offer birth to me. The way to be a truly grateful son isn't to examine her motives and ask, why did you give birth to me? The whole point is that I look at my mom and I just say, thank you, thank you. You went through hell for me. You bled for me. You went through a life-threatening experience to give birth to me. And that melts my heart into a new state. And that, that seems to be exactly what Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to do when he tells him that he must be born again. And I need it, and you need it, and we all need it. And don't just look for an emotional experience or a non-emotional experience. We were all born in different ways and we all get reborn, born again in different ways. So I've, I've, been, I've been talking entirely too long. I don't know where each one of you is right now with all of this. Maybe you're a Christian and you're just not living as if you were. Or maybe there's just stuff in your life and you need to confess the sin beneath the sin, not just the rule breaking, but the fact that you're worshiping some false God or false allegiances in your life that motivate you to do all the things that you do. So let's give it all to God in prayer. And remember that God is with us and his love is for us. That the gift of his spirit is available if we would just accept it. Look dear friends, and be saved. And I was going to invite Rex forward. I'm not sure where he is. Larie, would you be willing to come forward in his place? I'm gonna invite Larie forward just to stand at the foot of the steps. I'm going to pray, have the closing prayer, but then I will step down as well. And if there's anybody here that has any, any special needs, any special requests, Larie or myself, we'd love to hear from you. And we would love to pray with you and lift your praises or your petitions up to the throne of grace. Let us pray. Lord, we need to be born again. We need this new life in the spirit. Lord, there are a lot of things that we do and say and believe that are based on other than you. Lord, we confess that now but we also accept your spirit into our lives. We pray that you would change us from the inside out, that you would follow through with your promise, that you would give us not only a new spirit, but a new heart with your law written upon it, our focus being on you and doing good unto others. 
Lord, give us that experience. Give us that rebirth. Help us to be born anathem, to be born again. Lord, we need a restart. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us, for all that you will continue to do. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. It's because of Jesus that we can have this hope of life anew through you and with you. We give this all to you and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.